Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome back to What's the Crack? Today's episode is on spice and it's using the prison population. I'm here with Robin Lindsay. Hi. And today we're joined with Nikki Kolk from the National Addiction Centre. Nikki, could you tell the listeners who you are and what you do? Um, So I am a clinical lecturer in the addictions department, which means that I spend half of my time doing research and teaching, and the other half of my time as a jobbing junior psychiatrist working for the South London Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. Wonderful. Thank you. And so I hear you are an expert in spice and that's why you're here, is that correct? I wouldn't say that I'm an expert in spice. (laughs) I'm an interested party as in my capacity as an addiction psychiatrist and certainly on call um, visiting King's A&E over the weekend. Uh, Spice intoxication has been something that I've become increasingly aware of and increasingly concerned by. And so synthetic cannabinoids are compounds that mimic the effect of cannabis. We'll go further into this in detail a bit later, but this is just a brief overview. There are hundreds of synthetic cannabinoids, all with complex names, such as 5-F-A-K-B-48, which is so catchy, or (laughs) F-U-B-A-K-B, another really catchy one. F-U-B-A-K-B. Or S-T-S-135. Ooh. Okay, Ooh. this doesn't come across on the podcast, but Elle isn't reading this. No, no, no. <laughs> I know these compounds. <laughs> I spent a year, a year, yes, a year and a half studying all these compounds, so they all come wonderfully off the top of my head. Um, um, but yes, but there's more, uh, the things that we mo- mostly see in the media are more common names, such as Spice or Black Mamba, or in the US would be K2. Um, so Spice has recently had a lot of media coverage, uh, particularly very recently in the Manchester area, um, as they've said to be having a Spice epidemic. It's interesting. Is there a reason why it's gained the moniker zombie? I mean, is there a particular the physical effects, effect? Yes, yeah. yeah. so I mean, I think I can talk to talk to that and talk. Mm-hmm. I think we need to take a step back, talk about what Spice is, talk about the pharmacology and mm-hmm. how that relates to intoxication. Spice is one of 700 street names for so-called synthetic cannabinoids. Um, As a doctor, um, patients tend to give me a brand name of what they've taken, and I can't check in their urine, for a reason that I'll explain in a bit, um, exactly what they've taken. So what I tend to do is go to a very, very useful web page, which you might want to use, called spiceaddictionsupport.org, and they keep a running record of all the different names that essentially mean that you've taken a similar kind of thing. So synthetic cannabinoid refers to the fact that um, these chemicals, which are made in illicit laboratories, are similar in their action to THC, 
which is the active component of cannabis, in that they attach to the CB1 receptor in the brain. Now, what do I mean by receptor? So in your brain, you've got loads of different brain cells and messages are carried along the brain cell um, by an electrical current. But between each brain cell and the next brain cell, there is a gap called a synapse. Um, and different messages are conveyed in the brain between brain cells using different chemicals. And the different chemicals encode the type of message that is. So when we talk about a neurotransmitter, that is the chemical in the space in the synapse. And that attaches to a um, receptor on the next nerve cell down, kind of like a key in a lock, which causes changes in the shape of that receptor that have then effects on the next cell. Either it makes that cell more likely to carry the message on, or it makes the cell less likely to carry the message on, or it might influence release of other neurotransmitters. And um, cannabis is a, um, or compounds, um, including cannabis, include uh, THC and cannabis, including um, the endogenous cannabinoids that our own body produces, um, acting at the CB1 receptor are neuromodulators. So what they do is they influence the production and transmission of other neurotransmitters in the brain. For that reason, they have very widespread and um, diverse effects, including effects on learning and memory, sleep, appetite, and emotional regulation. Now, if we think about um, a neurotransmitter and a receptor as a key going into a lock, some keys are more effective than others and are more effective at opening the door. If you think of THC and cannabis as someone um, knocking on the door, and by the way, to reference this appropriately, this is Harry Shapiro's exp explanation. <laughs> um, a THC is knocking on the door. Synthetic cannabinoids are so much more powerful than it's like kicking the door open. Okay. So they, they are, by virtue of their constituent activity at the receptor, they are more powerful. They are also more potent than THC. So you need a much, much smaller amount of synthetic cannabinoid to activate, to turn the key in the lock or kick open the door than you would with an equivalent amount in weight of THC. Mm. So it, these, are, these are chemicals that kind of mimic the effects of, of, of cannabis, mm. um, but are just much, much, much stronger. And are, are they kind of a bit messier? Because it seems like some of the... I guess physical reactions people have, like we were saying about this whole kind of zombie thing, um, again in, in air quotes, um, as well as being stronger, do they have kind of more diverse effects than maybe cannabis would, um, or do they kind of act, are they kind of messier or? Their effects on other receptor systems can be indirect via their action on the CB1 receptors and they can be direct, so they can just attach to other things that influence other systems. So, so is that something cannabis wouldn't do? So whereas cannabis just goes into the CB1 receptor, um, this this is a bit like, it might not be like this at all, but if the um, the spice is like going in and like kicking down the door, plus the debris from the door is going everywhere and hitting other things. Is that what it's like? No. Oh. <laughs> Damn it. That's good. What you need to do to establish this is do a lot of basic pharmacological research, you know, doing the receptor profiling of various different... Um, synthetic cannabinoids and seeing what their, inf their direct influence on other receptors are. Um, so I don't want to kind of produce a statement saying, oh yeah, they all also mm. um, are associated with this. What they do seem to be associated with are things that cannabis isn't, um, like 
cardiac arrhythmia mm -hmm. and seizures. Okay. Cardiac arrhythmia being um, so your heart is a muscle, um, but it's a really special muscle that has an electrical system so that it beats in a coordinated fashion. And arrhythmia is when your heart doesn't beat in a coordinated fashion, it kind of flubbers, um, <laughs> and that doesn't push blood around your body mm -hmm. so well, um, and eventually there's cardiac arrest and death. So that's the other message, people die from spice use. Really? How many deaths per year do you know? So because it's such a low base rate in the population, I guess it can't be many. So at this, at this point, it's, it's sort of case reports, mm -hmm. um, but the physical complications of acute toxicity are such that in prison, um, there, something has developed in prison slang called the mambulance. So one of the common um, trade names for um, spice in prisons is black mamba. And there's a catchphrase, which is, if you're going to smoke the mamba, you better call them ambulance, because an ambulance is called so often to the prison to take pe cart people off to A&E because they're so physically unwell because of the effects of spice. And I think um, this problem has grown to the extent that spice intoxication, there was a survey of, I think, um, several prisons in England and Wales, and spice intoxication was reported in sort of 87 cases several years ago, and I think the same six-month period in 2014, it was sort of six of the order of 600 cases. Wow. Yeah, so its use is really prevalent in prisons, we think. Um, surveys by uh, uh, prisoner advocacy organisations um, seem to indicate that between 60 and 90% of prisoners have used spice in the past month, mm -hmm. uh, which is a huge Loads. proportion. Mm. Yeah. That is huge. I mean, I think the other thing I would flag up is that um, the basis of the, the prevalence statistics are online surveys and household surveys, and prisoners are not kind of captured mm. ordinarily by those two sort of sampling methods. Nor arguably the homeless with those as well. Indeed. Mm. Indeed. So what's happening in prison, sir? So people are using spice a lot <laughs> and there's some concern that it re relates to a lot of physical uh, ill health and um, certainly that it may be part of um, the explanation for the rise in assaults that we've been seeing although I do need to stress that there are other things going on in the prison estate which might also be important in um, relation to that. Yeah, so whilst drugs are obviously illegal in prisons, the use is really widespread and commonly mm -hmm. it's that heroin use is very high in prison populations and that's, like for me, that's the drug that I most associate with people using in prison, but that could just be because of the populations that I'm used to working with. But then now spice is kind of seems to have come out of nowhere. So you're, you're right to associate heroin use with prisons in that there is, a, I must say, minority of heroin users who are involved in... Um, acquisitive crime like um, burglary and predominantly shoplifting um, to fund their drug use and they are subject to criminal justice proceedings and do end up in prison in larger numbers than you would expect from their prevalence in the general population. However, there's been recent qualitative research that seems to suggest that um, initiation of new drug use in prison, um, where initiation of heroin used to be um, something that people used to see and snorting uh, diverted heroin substitutes, um, that spice seems to be a new sort of dominant uh, drug on yeah. the prison scene. So that's, that's a change. Um, I probably need to talk about why I think it's so... Um, 
used so much used in prison mm. and versus everywhere else mm. um, because the important thing to know about spice versus cannabis is that if you talk to users so the global drug survey um, it, which is a, an international online survey surveyed um, ca- people who use cannabis and use synthetic cannabinoids and found that people prefer using cannabis to synthetic cannabinoids um, so so the important thing to say is is that it's not necessarily something that people would use if they didn't feel like it was they were really good reasons to use it and the key thing with prison is that you have mandatory drug testing and sanctions attached to detection of cannabis or THC metabolites which is what they test the thing about synthetic cannabinoids is that it's a collective term for a massively chemically diverse group of compounds and what this means is that it's very very difficult to detect them on routine urine drug testing because urine drug testing is based on compounds having and compounds by that I mean drugs similar drugs having similar shapes so you kind of test for a key shape and someone will test positive for that shape of drug um, if you think about um, you know a sciencey molecule you know you will have seen sort of sciencey molecules in science labs so they have different shapes they look a little bit like honeycombs and you test for a particular pattern of honeycomb right mm. okay there are loads and loads of different completely different chemical structures that bind to the CB1 receptors. It turns out that it's really, really easy to design things that bind to this receptor. Uh, And that means that designing a a urine test and rolling it out commercially, which involves a certain amount of time and money, is very, very difficult because people can then just switch to a different structured um, uh, spice. And so one of the main reasons that prisoners use it is that it's not detected on urine drug screening, number one. Number two, it doesn't have the distinctive smell that cannabis has. And so, because if they are caught either using cannabis or other drugs or with it in their um, screen positive for it in a urine test, that can add time onto people's sentences. Um, Whereas, I mean... I think you can get two years added to your sentence if you're caught with spice. Yes. Uh, from what I understand, um, but because it's unscreenable, that's not going to happen. Whereas cannabis is a really, really obvious drug to take, and you're much more likely to get days and weeks and years added to your sentence. Is boredom a factor in it as well? But I, I guess that could go under the umbrella of all drugs in prison. It was one of the things. I mean, it's why heroin um, uh, of used to be so popular in, in the prisons and things like uh, you know benzodiazepines and cannabis and now synthetic cannabinoids is because they make your, your time go quicker, they, they pass time, um, whereas uh, stimulant drugs like cocaine and crack have uh, traditionally held and speed have, have not really taken hold in prisons in the same way because they make you, they kind of extend your sentence so like if you've got a week's sentence for example and you spend that week on speed it will feel much, much longer than if you have a week sentence and you spend that, that week on, on say benzodiazepines or, or heroin or cannabis or other downers like that which mm-hmm. kind of make time pass I think um, so people in prison um, are bored and then they're using spice because no one can tell that they're using it is that right? Is that a real? Is that a summary? I think I think there's a yeah there's a combination there's a there's a massive combination of things I mean it's it's preferable to other drugs because it can't be uh, found in tests it's part of a whole slew of drugs that will help your time 
pass um, easier. Easier to get in prison? So, so good question. How, how do drugs um, get into prison? Um, now, obviously, you know, I'm a, I'm a doctor, I'm a neuropharmacologist, uh, you know, this sort of thing isn't really my area, but my understanding is that people tend to um, plug their drugs, which means they put them in something, a, a useful vehicle. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Go like a condom or a kinder egg, and they insert them um, anally in order to evade detection um, because you know, um, internal searches and things aren't aren't allowed in prison reasonably enough. Um, there have also been talk of sort of drones delivering them and things. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we were saying with mandatory drug testing, um, slightly different in prisons as it is in the uh, general public, because with the no- uh, Novel Psychoactive Substances Act that was uh, implemented last year on the 26th of May, um, made all Um, dealing and supply illegal but possession not illegal Uh, except for if it was in a custodial institution which is why the mandatory drug testing and it's illegal to have in prisons uh, but not in the general public Uh, apart from again because as Nikki was saying there's like 700 compounds of synthetic cannabinoids there are some that are class B so in 2009 the first generation of synthetic cannabinoids were made illegal and put into class b which were the original naming of spice um and the compounds like jwh 018 Uh. (laughs) on we go all really interesting names um and then in 2012 because as soon as they made that illegal as we've said before so easy to make a load of others were made to uh, to avoid um, sanctions and going into prison because of taking those substances. A second generation came and they were banned in 2012. And then a third generation came because people just adapted the molecules. And that's another push of why the uh, Psychoactive Substances Act, which was a blanket ban, was to stop the cat and mouse game of banning a substance and then a new one would be created. So there are... It's, it's a odd way of this a few compounds that are actually class b in the general public whereas there are quite a lot of compounds that are that you can possess without going to prison for mm. is that the right word anyway but in summary in prison all illegal so i, th- I think there's there's, some, there's something really interesting here um about this explosion of uh, NPSs and um, and synthetic cannabinoids, um, just about that kind of 
how drug laws target the availability. There's that whole kind of supply and demand. So you look at a drug and how it's used and um, the two traditional ways of addressing this are by reducing um, demand, uh, so making people want the drugs less by either drug education or drug treatment, or reducing supply by arresting people at the borders who are bringing this stuff in or, or by arresting dealers by taking things off the street. Um, and this is one of the examples where restricting the supply or the legality of the drug in the the drugs in prison such as heroin and cannabis and um, benzodiazepines um, has not necessarily resulted but certainly had been an influence on the popula popularity of, of spice because of the drug testing um, that, that uh, Nikki was talking about and there's a the the reason I bring this in is because I think there's a really interesting example of um, of uh, crocodile in um, Ukraine again it's this kind of manufactured drugs and this rise of crocodile which again you'll see in fairly uh, um, uh, graphic news articles where someone's graphic. skin is being eaten away yeah, yeah. before yeah. and after shots they, they, they love this stuff in the press um, and the, the development of this drug crocodile um, is quite specific to Ukraine and, and certain parts of Russia um, and has really taken hold there because um, firstly, uh, they were off the um, when um, heroin started to go into the Eastern Bloc in the in the 90s. They were off the regular trade route from Afghanistan through to main uh, parts of Europe. Um, and then also, when I, th I found this really really fascinating in 2010, there was a massive poppy fungus which destroyed about 50% of the crops in Afghanistan. So um, heroin was really really restricted. And so just when it might have started to go into places like Ukraine, it didn't. And so independently of that, this whole crocodile thing, which was something you could manufacture with just a little bit of petrol, match heads, um, <laughs> codeine bought from the pharmacist and a whole load of other really, really deeply unpleasant things that you really wouldn't want to um, put into your body. Um, uh, this whole culture um, took off. And so the supply of heroin was very limited in those places and crocodile and things like that kind of grew up in in that place mm. um and i think it's one of those one of those things about the really unpredictable consequences of, of drug policy yeah you feel like just making everything illegal will solve the problem and then it just is like sure a hydra doesn't. a billion other terrifying yeah. heads appear which uh, yeah. you don't really know how to battle it's hydra. like yeah you know a hydra like a mythical creature which is a many-headed snake and every time you cut off a head more heads come out you watched hercules oh. the disney film I've, i have or not. have you read ovid's metamorphoses <laughs> <laughs> i think l was closest to mark <laughs> uh, i'm joking film, i don't know if it's <laughs> i've done neither of those things yeah uh, nikki when you see uh, patients who use uh, synthetic cannabinoids how do they how do they view their use of um of spice so i've seen i see patients in sort of two sort of scenarios with this currently um either they're patients who've been in, admitted to inpatient wards because the spice use has um precipitated a psychotic disorder in the patient or precipitated a relapse in someone who already has a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia um <clears throat> And usually the, the patient's pretty ambivalent about their spice use. Um, although I have had some patients who really like the sort of really strong euphoriant effect they get from it, like really strong THC, and can't really see how it gets in the way of their life, um, even though it does. Um, I've also seen people acutely suicidal and self-harming uh, in the throes of spice intoxication in A&E recess. 
um, and then have, have sort of met people with a, a, a history of contact with the criminal justice system who sort of told me about their experiences with it because I've asked um, and aren't really using it anymore out of prison. I think that's a really interesting question about whether people who initiate spice use in prison um, go on to continue to take it out take it out of prison in, in the way that people who um, initiate heroin use in prison um, develop the habit and continue. And I think that's a concern. Um, just you know, taking things back from a sort of policy to a more clinical focus is that it seems as though spice is more liable to cause a dependence syndrome than cannabis. Okay. So a significant minority of people who use spice want to stop but can't. Um, and there is uh, a well-described withdrawal syndrome that is similar to the cannabis withdrawal syndrome in that it involves craving, irritability, headache, um, anxiety and sleep problems with bad nightmares and nausea. At UCL and places are suggesting that cannabis, which has got higher THC content, is more uh, more addictive than cannabis, which has got a lower THC um, content. And spice, obviously, having this huge THC content. Not, uh, not THC content, THC mimicking content. Um, well, yeah. Looking to Nikki. So, looking to yeah. Nikki. <laughs> no, so it's not THC, yeah, but, but I guess I would say CB1 agonist activity okay. would be the technical way of putting it. <laughs> so, yeah, so this place really hitting that CB1 agonist in the same way that THC does is presumably a similar mechanism to why we see high potency cannabis being more associated with addiction as well. Yeah, and I guess arguably the other thing I sort of worry about is there is this association with um, psychosis which does seem to be, um, I mean, there's recent research uh, published by um, Dr. DeForti and colleagues suggesting that the association with um, cannabis and psychosis is certainly most convincing um, in people who take skunk. Um, anecdotally, we're seeing increasing cases of either psychotic um, illness occurring for the first time or, or certainly a relapse occurring in the context of spice, in, um, spice use. Um, and based on the pharmacology, that this would certainly be a concern. Um, so I think there's there's a huge unmet clinical need here, um, and also you know some some concentrated thinking needs to be done around what advice we might give to people who use spice around harm minimization and and quitting. Something that I think is very intriguing is the possibility of developing. Um, a treatment or uh, an antidote for um, acute spice intoxication mm-hmm. and I think there there is theoretically there's the pharmacological means to do this like naloxone with heroin yeah okay. so naloxone which instantly undoes the effect of heroin on the receptors in the brain and puts someone into withdrawal and therefore reverses their overdose so it's the impact of legislation and I think um, the three of you um, wax lyrical about the potential um, adverse and unintended consequences of legislation. But I think it is worth potentially mentioning that um, the effect of legislation on the behaviour of people in the general population, um, and although that you know this this is speculation and anecdote at this stage, it is it is quite possible that there are a, a population of people who would have use legal highs because they would perceive it to be less harmful because it is legal and I think there's some um, evidence from the United States to suggest that that was one of the motivations for teenagers using it. Um, So it it is possible that the change in legal status would have had an impact on using that population. Um, And sort of along similar lines um, I know that locally um, until the NPS bill came in, SPICE 
or presumed spice spice packaging um, was the most common illicit drug seized uh, or drug of abuse seized on um, patients in our wards uh, our inpatient psychiatric wards but it seems as though so what I hear is that since the NPS bill has come in that's largely sort of vanished um, so I think the the impact of policy um, I think other people have mentioned around the table have mentioned that you know drug policy is really difficult and it can have unintended consequences with you know um, very difficult consequences for vulnerable groups but I think that needs to be counterbalanced against um, some really positive consequences in the general population and in other vulnerable groups like psychiatric inpatients. So to address um, the initial point you made Al about media portrayal of drug use and the fact that there are these drug panics I think while it's true that um, use of spice is not very prevalent in the UK um, and its uses seems to be kind of confined to certain circumscribed groups of people. Um, I think it is clear that this is is a dangerous substance with um, severe acute harms and potential for dependence uh, that is affecting um, a very vulnerable group of people. Um, I think the that and, and that is bad news. Um, I think it really is concerning that this this is causing people to have to go to you know to a hospital on a weekly basis from prison, um, and has been reported in, in association with deaths. Um, I think the the good news and the sort of the positive um, outcome, I guess, of the media panic is is my hope that this will cause um, an impetus for research and development of treatment um, for this problem and particularly you know pharmacologically if, if you can if you can if it's easy to develop ligands for the CB1 receptor you know there are already CB1 antagonists in, in out there um, and that could be um, a, a, a really helpful area of investigation and something that the clinicians out there might want to know about is um, something that Public Health England is piloting for a year which is to try and um, which is an in initiative called the Report Illicit Drug Reaction um, website, where um, clinicians have the opportunity to um, report adverse reactions that they witness um, in response to novel psychoactive substances mm -hmm. that patients have taken. So it's an online form, and you just fill in as much information as you can. Um, it's on the Public Health England website and we can provide the link yeah, yeah, on, on our webpage and I would encourage anybody who's kind of involved in any drug treatment services or psychiatric services, ambulance services, A&E um, to get reporting because one of the huge challenges with novel psychoactive substances in general is that we are learning about them in an incremental manner um, and that to appropriately help people who take them and who come to harm from them um, we need as much information as we can get and we're really not there yet. Okay, so that was our episode on SPICE. We've gone through a lot of things today. Uh, we've focused on the prison population, what it is, uh, the uh, positives and negatives of the ban that came uh, introduced in 2016 and looking to the future of how we're going to deal with this, uh, with, with SPICE in the population. Um, I want to thank Nikki Kolk for coming in and just, uh, coming with us for this episode on SPICE and thanks to Robin Lindsay for always being here. Oh, thanks. Sir. And we'll see you in a fortnight where we talk 
talk about drugs in films. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Drugs in films. End of term special.